Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Julia Lembierski fell in love with the world of startups when she founded her first one in high school and scaled it to the third largest coupon site in Germany. Since then, she has been building and scaling new ventures for companies such as Rocket Internet, Uber, and many others. Currently, as the co-founder and managing director at JJ Studio, she helps startups of all sizes launch new products and markets, scale their operations, and acquire users through world-class marketing and sales efforts. She is passionate about investing in wealth management education and is actively managing a stock portfolio with over 150% in annual ROI, investing in real estate, startups. She also recently joined Frontier Ventures, a 10-year-old Cupertino-based fund with over $100 million in assets under management as a principal. She's looking to connect with anyone in the startup world or those who are thinking about entering it. Julia, welcome to the One Away Show. Great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, it's been awesome uh, getting to know you the last few months, and uh, you know I'm so excited to do this. And for you know everyone, this is Julia's first podcast. She let me know. I'm sh- I'm shocked to hear that, but uh, many more in your future, I'm sure. So, Julia, tell me, what's the one away moment that you want to talk about today? It's hard to tailor it down to just one because, to be honest, my uh, whole career, my whole life is just a string of these odd moments where I took the path less traveled, so to say. Um, But I guess if I have to think back to the one that made one of the biggest changes, um, it was when I was 15 years old. I had a lot of thoughts of what I would want to do in the future. I think at some point around nine or 10 years old, I wanted to become a clown. Then for some years, I wanted to become a songwriter. Um, So mostly, I guess, in the creative side of things. But then I knew that my father was doing something with business. I had no idea what it is. I just know you have to wear a suit. That was kind of, you know, for a couple of years, the only thing I knew about that world. And then um, when I was 15, I um, decided to go to the States for the first time. I was at that point living in Germany and have never been to the U.S. before, barely spoke, you know, a few words of broken English. And this was just a great kind of opportunity for me to immerse myself in a whole new world. And the actual moment was that as I was getting on the plane, a friend of mine uh, gave me a parting gift and she gave me the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad uh, by Robert Kiyosaki, which really served as an introduction for me into the world of business at this age of 15. Um, I read that book on that flight. And as I stepped off the plane in, um, in the U.S. in a small town in Ohio, I realized that I was onto something really exciting. And I, over the next uh, year that I was there, I must have read something close to 100 books about business and economics and investing and all of that. And that was really my kind of starting point. Mm. Wow. Uh, it's amazing how one book, right, can can really fuel a series of others. It seems like you, <laughs> you went down the rabbit hole pretty deep. Julia, so describe maybe why, why do you think investing and business and economics at the age of 15 was so compelling to you, right? Because many kids could have read that book and been like, yeah, very interesting concept, but that seemed to really take to you. 
Um, do you have any formative experiences growing up or was there anything that like just really channeled that interest to maybe see a better future for yourself? Yeah, I would say that entrepreneurship and investing is like a family disease that runs in our gene. So, and it's not like a, you know, big successful firms that are my company, my, my family founded. It's really all about just the drive to do something. Um, I remember just growing up age, you know, four, five, six, back then still living in Russia. My grandma, um, you know, some kids would look forward to spend time with her grandma and get spoiled with some good food and, you know, just relax. No, she would pick me up from kindergarten and she would give me, set up a table for me with a bunch of like things that she bought from like China and would have me sit in front of the kindergarten and sell them. And like, or in the middle of the winter, you know, stand by the subway and sell some of the hats that she would sew. And until, you know, we sell all of them, we're not, we're not going home. So <laughs> I was definitely highly incentivized to be selling those hats and approaching people on the street. And that was, I guess, some of my earliest exposures to the words of business and selling. And um, my family was also, you know, not, not very well off at that point where, you know, but that all happened uh, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother. And so whatever money we would be making from these little, uh, uh, you know, uh, startups, <laughs> I guess, uh, we would just invest, you know, like we... Um, bought some land, um, you know, that we then started growing some flowers on and then selling those again. So it just was part of my um, upbringing like from very early on. And then further on, you know, when I was seven, I, I, my mom and I, we moved to Germany and there, I think even more solidified how important it is to have some financial independence. Um, you know, like we were very financially dependent from, you know, the, the German uh, man that she married. Uh, and so I think that instilled in me another kind of urgency for, you know, making sure that I can provide for myself, that I'm never dependent on someone. And if I want to be able to leave or something that I have that opportunity. Mm. And from there it started. And even throughout kind of high school and stuff, I had some small, but I now understand are entrepreneurial um, situations. Like I would uh, buy, uh, get free old magazines from the local kiosk and like cut out uh, elements of whatever the biggest star was of that moment and sell those uh, on the playground uh, to other classmates and stuff. And that money I would then use to go to the cinema, for example, we, things that I was not able to do because just my family would, my you know stepfather would not be uh, giving money for any of those such pleasurable activities. So again, like early on getting this financial independence to do the things that I enjoy doing. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, you grew up in an environment that I think exposed you to entrepreneurship, but you also, you know, probably part of your DNA too was you're born with a lot of self-drive to make a better life for yourself. And of course, your your personal experience growing up probably influenced that and shaped that, but you had that, you know, tenacious, you know, hunger for for more and better and, and what a great quality to have and then activate at such a young age. Yeah, definitely uh, had a great role models uh, in terms of strong women in my family. Um, you know, I mentioned my grandmother already who, you know, up until her passing uh, last year, she was still doing her businesses and selling flowers. And, you know, even though we were tell her, please enjoy retirement or something at those point, you're over 80, you know, she she kept going and investing as well and doing other things. And then my mom, of course, uh, you know, so she raised me by herself, you know, this, in this very chaotic time in the 90s in Russia. Um, and, you know, 
the big sacrifice of kind of going to Germany, um, you know, marrying someone that she wasn't even that excited about, but to make sure that I can get out of, you know, the mess of post-USSR Russia and get a good chance uh, and get a good education. Um, and during, you know, the years growing up, um, I saw her starting one company after the other. She had a travel agency, then she was doing some real estate stuff. Um, you know, she was getting like an IT degree as well. So she kept always pushing and, and, and doing things that are maybe a little bit more unorthodox, but kind of, you know, in the realm of investing and, and uh, own companies. So that really instilled the same values in me. Well, that's so cool. You know, and uh, I'm really, I'm not surprised. It's like a lot of sacrifice was made uh, by these strong women in your family who helped pave a better road. And, but you, you've been able to kind of drive your own car, you know, it sounds like since you got to Ohio and picked up that book and thank you for the history and the context here, just so we can understand some of your drivers. So you got that book, you stepped off the plane and it was extremely formative uh, about investing. You read tons of other books. I mean, what, what happened? Like what, what were some of the things that were, uh, came out of, you know, coming to Ohio, coming to the States and like what happened next after you started consuming all this material and where did your interests go, your experiences take you? Yeah. So I think one of the first things that happened uh, shortly after stepping off that plane is uh, me petitioning my host family that I was staying with uh, to sign a waiver so I can open a, a brokerage account as an underage you know, immigrant kind of. Um, so there was a lot of kind of bureaucracy to be able to do so. And then on top of that, petitioning uh, everyone in my family to um, give me some money for my then birthday, my 16th birthday, we got together like $600. So that kind of was my very first investment in this new brokerage account. And um, I remember, you know, I was supposed to be in Ohio in this um, high school, you know, learning English and doing all these things. Instead, I would sit in the library for quite a substantial amount of the day, unfortunately missing some classes, but I would just couldn't get away from trading. Um, I really got deep into kind of the day trading side of things at that point. And so a lot of my focus um, for those couple of months was around, you know, but my dream was to work on Wall Street. I was obsessed with a show called Wall Street Warriors back then in like 2007, I think it was. So that was kind of my focus for, for that point. And then um, when I returned back to Germany after that year to finish my education there, I started just being much more open to opportunities. I learned that this is something that as an entrepreneur, you know, you just need to say yes a lot. And after trying and trying more and more things, something will stick. Um, so I joined uh, a new school uh, when I came back from my last two years of high school. And I just noticed that the school did not have a lot of, um, you know, student clubs or organizations or anything like that. And you know, people would, you know, someone in the school would say like, hey, it would be nice if we had a leader for Amnesty International. So I would raise my hand and say like, sure, I'll do it. Um, wouldn't it be nice to have a, school, a student newspaper? Sure, I'll do it. Um, investment club, sure, sure I do it. Um, uh, environmental club, yep, I, I got it. And so I just kept, um, you know, taking opportunity after opportunity um, and just did a lot of these kind of more extracurricular activities outside of my um, kind of education. And that just led to a lot of other opportunities down the line. And so shortly after, um, so when I just turned 17, I first heard about the word uh, startup. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know what it is, started researching. And back then there wasn't like a whole ton of information, especially kind of in Germany around that. But I just tried to find some ways into that world. And I did so through social media. 
obviously I had just started using Facebook, which came out a couple of years earlier. And, you know, a lot of more advertisers started moving into it. And so I got an internship um, while in high school for a startup as a social media coordinator, trying to figure out that whole world without a lot of, um, you know, playbooks and rules that exist today um, for that realm. And so that got me really closely integrated into that world. And um, soon after, while still in high school, I got my first semi full-time job at a startup. I had to lie on my um, resume in terms of my age because I was still under age, but uh, I got a really exciting job to lead sales for a, for a startup in Munich and was able to, you know, despite still going to school, um, you know, blow out the, the sales target like above anything they've seen. So that was also a very formative experience using a lot of the sales techniques. My grandma taught me selling hats by the subway station. Um, so I did that for a bit. And both of these startups were in a similar um, industry uh, around kind of online couponing and saving and like what's today's Groupon. And I just saw a lot of inefficiencies um, in that uh, industry and thought there must be better ways to do it. And that led me at... Um, just when I turned 18 and was legally allowed to do so, um, I registered my first company, which then became a couponing startup, which I then grew to the third biggest one in that industry in Germany by age 19. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, that's quite the story. Uh, restless and always finding the next opportunity following, you know, what you saw. And, and that's neat, right? You just let one thing kind of compound the transfer and take you to the next and uh, in fact, to, to tell us maybe get a little insight about having to lie or not, I mean, how to you know, say you were a little bit older. I mean, I, I have a similar experience in college like that, so I can appreciate stories like that. But what, what, um, can you just give us some insight into that? I think rules are some rules are there to be broken if you have good reasons to do so. Um, like even for example, with this high school. So one thing I, I didn't mention is on top of starting to run my own startup and doing high school, I also started college at that same year and kind of finished my first year of college in the midst of all that. And so my high school had to be very flexible about me skipping, you know, classes half the time and doing all of that. Um, and so I negotiated with all of my teachers, um, you know, about, you know, if I, if I get a certain GPA on this class, can I, you know, not come anymore, and maybe just take the exam. So it's kind of a question of, you know, not just taking rules at face value. And mm. if you have a good reason, find your ways around them, not necessarily lying maybe, but just kind of, you know, finding ways to bend the rules. Mm. I like that. Yeah. No, uh, rules are, some rules are very much meant to be broken and you, you were looking out for your career and uh, doing what it took to succeed and, you know, makes a lot of sense. So good answer. Uh, so you, you went on this kind of fast trajectory. What I'm, I'm curious about on coming to the U S I mean, was it, how hard was it? How was it hard for you to uh, kind of break into the U S culture and kind of find your way as you, I mean, so you're kind of trying to figure out this whole new world and learn these skills and then, you know, figure out your professional path. You know, what, what was it like for you maybe at such a, t a formative time coming to the U S can you give some personal context there? Yeah. I mean, the thing is I, my whole life has been a little unusual. I've never, I don't have a place I can call a home or anything like this. Like, you know, I don't have sort of upbringing. So, 
you know, already moving from, you know, from Russia to Germany at age uh, six, and then moving also from a small town in Germany to Munich, one of the biggest capitals in the world, you know, like at age 13, and then like in between moving around, the moving into a new culture was not something that really kind of scared me off. Um, but it was definitely a big difference in mindset. Um, so German educational system is quite different from, from what I had experienced in the U.S. when I came there. And it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Um, I never had seen, how do you call them, these Scantron cards or whatever, where you have these multiple choice um, kind of Bubbles. tests. Yeah. Right. right. Um, like in, in Germany, like no matter what class you take, you write an essay about it. Like if you have a history class, you know, you your prompt on an exam will be, you know, like how does this situation that happened back then relate to today's politics and the value, you know, both sides of this conversation. So that's kind of the education I was brought up with more. And then in the US, um, it was a little bit more kind of bulimia learning, to be honest. So like irritating, you know, what date a certain thing happened. So that was for me a big um, contrast to what I had been used to. And I saw that as well as something that persisted outside of just my kind of, um, you know, school environment, whereby, you know, this thirst I have for knowledge and reading, you know, two books a week for, for that year I was there, um, was not necessarily something I've seen in everyone. Um, and so part of my kind of mission when I started coming back to the U.S. more and more, um, like I went to Stanford, for example, for some classes, and then obviously a couple of years ago, fully relocated here. Part of my mission was to help people, um, you know, access some of this more critical thinking and information and, um, you know, just also be an inspiration for people to kind of question things and go the unusual path. Um, mm -hmm. Just maybe just give one little example from my personal life. Like when my um, husband and I went to our honeymoon in um, Palm Springs, you know, like I, I just wanted to find something fun to do there. And, um, you know, I just decided like, oh, we, we both, neither of us knew how to drive at that point. So we thought, hey, let's, how about we get a driver? So I just found someone, random person on Craigslist and started riding with them. And that person was like, yeah, just send me your credit card information. And I asked my husband, because I didn't have a US credit card. And I'm like, hey, can I have your husband? Someone on Craigslist wants it. And he gave me like this stare of like, are you crazy? Like you don't do that in this country, right? But I ended up doing it because, you know, I've done my research about, you know, who this person was and it ended up being the most incredible driver, most incredible trip for a couple of days that he was driving us all around the area. He turned out to be the personal driver for like Frank Sinatra, for several of the presidents and so on. So this is just one example. of oh, like, That's cool because Frank, Frank Sinatra did spend a lot of time in Palm Springs. Yeah, exactly. So, so he was like his driver there. And, um, and, and so this is just one example of where... I, I do something very differently from what majority of people would do. Like, you know, you're told to do some, not do certain things. Like you don't, if people online, like on Craigslist, a credit card, you don't do this, you don't do that. And like, we're all like living in a limited life, I guess, as a result. Whereas I always try to push against these kind of norms and do additional steps of research and do some critical thinking to evaluate the pros and cons. And, um, you know, and, and, and so that's something that I want to serve as an inspiration because I just think it's a really important skill to have if you want to have a life that's not just the status quo and that's just something really special. Super cool. Um, I appreciate the perspective and I the shift in you said, you know, it wasn't the change of culture, right? In the U.S., right? It was, it was just the mindset and just how things were done different. So, but you, I mean, you seem like you're prone to adaption and adapting quite well uh, in different industries and you know countries and all the above. I'm sure. So, very, very cool. And, and thanks for all the context. So, 
you know, it sounds like you went down this professional path, you know, investing and, and, you know, trading and doing all these different things, real estate, from what I understand a little bit with you, talk about where you are today a little bit. I know you've made some recent big moves and maybe let us know kind of what led to those moves and kind of shaping out how they have. Those stories I shared about kind of having my own startup and scaling that, um, that's about 10 years ago at this point. So over the last 10 years, starting from that experience, I continued scaling a bunch more startups in different industries and from different perspectives and roles. Um, You know, I worked for Uber for many years, launching them internationally, um, you know, scaling some of their ventures like Uber Eats, where I was the GM in Russia, um, you know, launching the jump scooters throughout the US, running operations for UberWorks. And then also I worked for Rocket Internet for a couple of years, um, you know, developing some of their ventures throughout the world. After all of these years of of building and launching and scaling, I just realized that the biggest issue most startups face is around this hyper growth phase. So, you know, an investor trusts your vision and gives you a bunch of money. And that vision is based on some really crazy goals you've set and and that, um, you know, you needed to impress the investor. And now you need to figure out, okay, how do I get to 10x my order volume, to 5x my team, to do this, to that, that, and within a very short time frame. And a lot of startups, unfortunately, fail at this point because of all of the issues that can happen. So after leaving Uber a bit over a year ago, I co-founded JJ Studio with another ex uh, Uber executive. And so what we've been doing for the past bit over a year is working with startups in this hyper growth stage to make sure that they're set up well and successful when it comes to scaling their operations, um, scaling the growth channels, scaling the team, making sure that, you know, helping them look around corners so they don't have um, consequences of growing too fast, like having to do restructuring and stuff like this uh, later on. And so we've been working with, um, you know, over a dozen of these, you know, well-known hypergrowth startups to kind of come in in a way as fractional CMOs and COOs with the team that we've built and take on entire departments and kind of get them ready for scale. On that, this just aggressive kind of path of expansion and being front and center at, you know, Uber and, you know, you know doing what you've done with JJ Studio, what what would you say, you know, just for those listening and maybe those people who are at the beginning of their journeys or maybe into their journeys, but haven't hit that hyper growth perspective or stage yet, what would you say are the just key ingredients to, for a team, uh, a company to have in place that enables the growth and the expansion that, you know, investors want to see? Right. I mean, it's maybe kind of not the sexiest topic, but the one I see go- happening wrong more and like the most, uh, it's org chart design. Um, you know, during this hyper growth phase, you don't know exactly what your company will look like. Maybe you have a vision of what it's going to be like at maturity, like when you hit those goals that you promised your investors. But this in between, like quarter by quarter, mm. your org chart is going to look very differently, right? And your different maybe pivots or, or changes uh, to hypothesis that you had about how the sales are going to work, like, no, they're all going to reshift your org chart. And so it's really, really important at that moment when you're getting ready for hyper growth to think out what are all these different scenarios for these in-between org charts, ideally quarter by quarter. Because if you don't do that, if you just go like from point today to point, okay, in three years, this is how it's going to look like, and just try to kind of back your way into it, that's where most problems happen. And I've seen a ton of great companies fail just because of this. Um, you know, they 
end up having to do really painful restructurings, um, having to um, uh, lay people off. They're typically losing their highest motivated, uh, hardest working workers as a result. They're eroding a lot of trust. They're um, you know losing a lot of the attention and energy of the founders in that whole process as well of these reorgs and stuff. So putting that time up front and maybe also working with a third party that has seen these scenarios and is able to map those out um, is one of the key things. Wow. I guess the other one um, probably has something to do with the growth channels. So another mistake I see companies do is they figure that they know what, you know, everyone does Facebook ads. So that's probably what we've got to do. Right. And then they just hire an agency and think like, Oh, you know, they're the experts. Here's just, you know, our budget. Here's like 20% of what you raised go run with it. So each startup is in the different stages is going to have very different reactions of users to channels and messaging. And it's really important to just test a wide range of channels and do it in-house or with a consultant working very close with you for as long as possible before you start um, you know, giving entire channels off to a third party. What we've seen, for example, with some of our clients is that channels that you wouldn't expect, like direct mail, performing so much better than any Facebook ads. Um, so with the, you, you just need to have a scalable process of testing and iterating on, you know, a dozen or so channels before you, you know, solidify your plan to a way where you can scale up with a third party. Got it. Man, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And I think what, you know, the unsexy thing of org charts, right? That's, that's never fun. Um, Good, good COO, I think can can help with that. Uh, but also, you know, like you on the marketing and sales side, right? The experimentation, understanding what's going to work, what doesn't, uh, before you just dump a ton of money in one area. So, um, well, well said. Um, but I want to I want to let you go back to what you were saying. You got all this experience with expansion. Thanks for sharing kind of some of the things that you do. I've seen them work best over the years. Um, you got this experience in the expansion side, and then you were talking about where that where that was taking you. Yeah, so, so basically for the last, um, you know, 10, 15 years or so of my, you know, career, there's been two separate worlds. One is the startup entrepreneurship leading organizations through scaling. And on the other hand, um, you know, my early passion from investing since age 15 of opening my first brokerage account, um, that kept growing as well. So I continued to trade. I've been, um, you know, I developed a proprietary tra- uh, securities trading strategy as well over the last few years that's been outperforming, um, you know, a lot of the funds um, out there um, that I've been teaching to others as well. And then I started moving into real estate about 10 years ago. So I've been really active in real estate investing. Um, it just closed actually yesterday on, on another property this year. So celebrating more recently in the last few years, I started merging these two worlds of startups and investing um, through going more and more into venture investing. So I became an, a limited partner at a couple of VC firms that really got me closely, more closely tied in into that industry. And then I also joined uh, On Deck uh, Angels, um, so a community of um, you know angels that want to grow and learn together and share deal flow, etc. So I've been doing that for uh, the big chunk of this year, and then just doing a lot of my own checks as an angel. And so since I was getting more and more involved in this kind of venture investing side, and just saw that you know the impact that I can have on the startup community and kind of the amount I can give back is um, you know scale so much more versus what I can do as an individual on the mm. side of things. Um, I decided to ha- do a recent career move into uh, VC. So I actually, a few weeks ago, joined Frontier Ventures, um, which is a 10-year-old uh, computer-based um, VC firm. Uh, and yeah, so I've been uh, investing with them, alongside them. Uh, we're just preparing another fundraise for a new fund. And uh, it's just been a super interesting experience, um, you know, seeing what this world looks like from the other side of what I've been used to over the last 10 years. So it's, it's a really great learning journey. 
Yeah. Well, first, congratulations. Uh, and then second, just, it seems your investing perspective, you know, you're, you're diversified, you know, and from real estate to different angels to real estate, uh, you get what I mean? You're diversified in a way, but also like able to make an impact. And I want to, I want to lean into that a little bit. You talked about kind of having a, a dent on the community and even through the expansion work you're doing, right. You're making a dent on different startups. So they avoid pitfalls through investing, right? And through finding different companies and founders to invest into, what what have you found to be the most, let's just say, re- re- rewarding or fulfilling components of identifying and working with founders to, you know, help them help their dreams come through? A great question. Um, I would just say, I mean, there's just so many problems still to be addressed in this world. Um, and it's just fascinating to see how many different innovative and diverse solutions there are to these problems. Um, and so being able to support founders with the more kind of diverse and unusual um, solutions, um, as I mentioned before, like I was always the one kind of taking the, the path less traveled in a way, the more unorthodox approach to do something and still, you know, succeeding in it. Um, so kind of having this opportunity now for, as an investor to do so um, has been really exciting. Um, and I, I definitely think there is a great um, edge to diversity when it comes to investing. So, for example, the first fund um, that I joined as a limited partner is called One Way Ventures. They specifically invest only in founders that are immigrants. And so they've been really able to harness, um, you know, this diverse background, this experience of having gone through the immigration journey and transfer that to also, you know, amazing returns and successes in the mm. startup world. So I think we're starting to see more and more of this emerging. Got it. Can, can I just one question? Did you say, what was the name of the fund? One way. Oh, I thought you said one away. I was like, <laughs> 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 well, that's very cool. And also super aligned to you on a, you know, where you came from on a personal level. Yeah, exactly. I do think that, um, you know, one of the key things you need to have as a founder is resilience. Um, and so having demonstrated that in some way, for example, by, you know, being an immigrant and having gone through that journey or by, you know, being a minority in, in, in some context, you know, all these things show that, you know, when things get tough, you don't just, you know, pack up your bag and fly back to your home country. You stick it through and, um, you know, that resiliency translates most usually to success. Absolutely. That's awesome. No, it's, uh, it's, I think it's just neat to knowing investors in just my world or the community that I've been able to build relationships. You know, I think it's, it's so much more than just like the check or the money that these people are able to give. Like that is, it's the belief and just the passion behind feeling, you know, these ideas to solve the problems that they're aligned with. And it's neat to see investors who put the money where, you know, the things that they really believe in and kind of can see the other founders do. And I I just have to imagine it's a really rewarding experience. Um, Not that I'm there yet, but uh, you know, one day. I would say as well that, you know, especially how the market is right now with there being a lot of money in it, interested to invest into ventures, you know, as an investor, not only is it in your best interest, but you actually have to, you know, be a value add investor and, you know, provide guidance on top of money and connections and other things. So that's definitely something I've been looking forward to the most in this switch that, you know, not I'm not just kind of pushing money from an investor to a company. I'm actually working very closely with these portfolio companies as well as upcoming investments to, you know, leverage my knowledge and my experience to help them succeed. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. Right. You bring a lot to the table from your own experience. You can look at things from the lenses of uh, what you have done um, with, with, with frontier as you've really stepped into this new role, you know, what, what are you uh, most looking forward to as this becomes a, a primary focus in your life? Um, it's also a great question. So for me, it's really right now about an amazing learning experience um, because yes, there is, it's, there's more to the VC world than I thought there was being more of an outsider kind of seeing it from the founder's perspective. It is a really tough job. It is really time intensive and there's a lot of thoughts and research that goes into things. Um, and so for me personally, I'm just excited to be part of this learning journey. Um, and then hopefully as I get more ramped up and um, start, you know, deciding on my own deals and then sourcing my own deals, you know, having this impact that we talked about, um, that's going to be key as well. Um and besides that, um, again, I, I I do foresee my favorite part will be the working with the portfolio companies because that's just something that you know feels most close to what I've been doing for the past ten years or so. Um, so that's something that's starting up already now, where we're brainstorming with some of the companies that might be needing to pivot soon, and like I can be part of these conversations as an external party in a way and help them you know through it, um, while at the same time, of course, keeping our LPs' interests in mind. Yeah, that's great. No, it's uh, it's just neat to see your passion. And just like, I love how you described it as this is a, a learning journey for me, right? And, you know, you'll source and do your own deals one day, but, you know, you're really in it to understand the landscape of what's in front of you, which I think is just a really healthy mindset. Um, Julia, you, there's a, I think there's a, a lot of narratives right now going on within the venture space of well, yes, there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of money in these funds. I think on the flip side to that, you hear, you know, just some of the flags around venture. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to change the narrative in venture. I think for you, like as a venture, as a, a industry from a holistic perspective, I'm just curious, what are some of the things you maybe would like to see change, right? From an optics perspective, as you kind of enter into this field? Sure. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously within venture, it's always been kind of the rule that if it comes through a warm referrals from someone you trust, like that's your, you know, foot through the door. But unfortunately, what that means is that, you know, unless you also are uh, a white man in your 30s who graduated from Stanford at the same year as, you know, some of these other VCs, whatever, like it's, it's, it's fairly it's it's um, doesn't include a lot of the top talent kind of and the amazing inspiring entrepreneurs because they're just outside of these small circles, um, and I think more and more investors are starting to realize that they shouldn't over-index just for you know oh it came referred from this other person in my little circle, um, and should just be a bit more open to see, speaking to founders that are you know outside of that that might be in a different country or you know just a different background or whatever it might be. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm, I guess, a little bit grateful for the pandemic for for forcing that change a little bit, because a big practical reason in the past why the referrals were so important is that, you know, VCs would usually meet up in person, and then those meetings would typically go quite long, and then just, you know, there's just so many companies you can see in a day, so you you really only want to stick to the ones that came with a warm referral from someone you trust. Whereas now, the more and more also angels and VCs that I speak to, they can just take more calls. I mean, you just do like a 20 minute zoom to get like a first introduction. And I've noticed it even with myself, like I, um, you know, there were some companies that 
just kind of on paper, I was not as excited about. Some of them were like a cold LinkedIn outreach or something, but I thought like, you know, what the heck, 20 minutes of my time, you know, I'll just jump on the Zoom. And those, some of them really blew me away. So I think, yeah, it's just really important over the next couple of years to get away from this narrative that unless it's in my little circle, mm. it's not worth the time. Oh, that's beautiful. And it creates more diverse investing opportunities and, you know, network effects kind of change over time. And uh, I think that's a great perspective to just always be open. And my mom always told me growing up, she was like, the meetings that you like don't want to take are sometimes the best meetings possible to go to. And I've always like kept that in the back of my mind when, you know, something comes up and I'm like, should I do this? And then like, I've that voice in my head is like, yeah, you should do it. And then it's like going in with a new perspective, but it seems like you embrace that. You, you embrace it, not always coming from your own little bubble. And I think it's neat too, though, because the perspective you have, like you've never had something you call home, right? And so when it comes to jobs and different things, like you're you're malleable to different opportunities. So I think that's, that's really neat. Julia, this has been, I think, a really, really fun interview for me. And just to hear your background, especially as an immigrant coming from Europe to the U.S. And I just, the perspective is uh, just amazing. And I just really am so proud of, you know, all you've been able to accomplish uh, and so much more ahead of you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a blast. Yeah. And so for those listening, if they, uh, if you're interested in getting to know Julia and you're interested in maybe sending her a deal one day, uh, to look at what Julia, where, where's the best place to find you, connect with you, and uh, learn learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, feel free to connect on LinkedIn. But beyond that, um, take a look at meetjjstudio.com, um, where you can find more information about us and get in touch with me as well as Janisa directly through that. And then for Frontier, it's frontier.ventures. Um, you can either submit a deck through that if you're looking for fundraising, or you can just email me at jl at frontier.ventures. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julia. I really appreciate your time and uh, excited to watch you uh, soar in the future. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.